Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, very special mailbag edition. It is Sunday. We are here with our mailbag. When I say we, I'm me, Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and I'm here with Strawman.com's Boss Cocky, Founder, Managing Director, Chief Cook and Bottle Washer, Andrew Page. How are you, buddy? I'm good as always, uh, Scott. Good to Glad chat. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Mate, it's, always, it's always fun spending some time with you, having a bit of a chat about all things investing and economics. Um, before I do, though, here's your next challenge. Tell me differently. What is strawman.com? Um, okay, let's try this. Uh, Strawman is a way to engage with other private investors to practice some investing um, without the, uh, the the risk of, of real cash and hopefully learn from some other very savvy private investors. There you go, mate. Nice one. I'm looking forward to you to tell me one, one day you're going to tell me it's a riddle trapped inside an enigma and at that point I'll know we've finally reached down to the deal. But <laughs> until, until then, until then, well Within done. bedrock. Yep. <laughs> you, can, you can find out more about Andrew, of course, at strawman.com. Um, I'll share some socials a little bit later. And, of course, the Motley Fool is fool.com.au. Um, Andrew is a former fool, always a fool, a fool for life, but uh, no longer with the organisation. But he and I started this podcast together. We are back doing it together again, which I couldn't be happier about. Mate, this is our Sunday Mailbag edition. But as I teased on Friday, we didn't get to, because the budget conversation went longer than, well, I was going to say longer than we expected, but frankly, you and I know better. So we just bad, badly managed it and, and I set up terrible expectations. So it's more that than anything. But we, we missed, the, the, missed the, the big, I mentioned the elephant in the room about the debt, so maybe I can't use the same metaphor, uh, the giraffe in the forest. No, I'll just go with the elephant in the room. We missed the elephant in the room, which was the big volatility in US markets late this week. Now, we record this on Thursday morning, as our listeners know. So I don't know what happens on Thursday or Friday. I do know the markets opened down today. The US markets were down more than 2% overnight. Um, the cause of that, as much as you can ever tell causes of these things, you know, people say market companies, what, what, what did the market fall? People make stuff up generally and kind of, you know, but occasionally it's pretty clear. This time, before the market opened on Wednesday night, our time, the US inflation numbers were out. And those numbers, these are monthly numbers. And instead of being the 0.2%, that the market expected. Now, 0.2 doesn't sound like a lot, by the way. If you annualize that, that gets up to 2.5. So it's, you know, it's about what you'd expect. Instead of 0.2, it was 0.8. Four mm. times as much inflation as the market thought. The annual rate in the US is now 4.2%. And we said we'd talk about it. And so we're going to very quickly at the beginning of our podcast because, mate, this is, this is as I said, we talked about inflation, interest rates, and RBA. And on one level, it's kind of really macro and really esoteric and not very applicable. Does it change which companies you buy? Maybe even it should. But broadly speaking, it doesn't change how you and I invest on a daily basis. And yet, the market kind of got seriously freaked out about it. So this matters. Let's go through it a little bit, mate. Why does the market care that inflation is back, potentially? Well, the way that you control inflation or the main way that you control inflation is through interest rates. If things are getting a bit too hot, um, you raise rates, and when rates go higher, mm-hmm. the it is it is harder to justify higher valuations for equities, mm-hmm. um, and that's because everything is done on a comparative basis. If I could get ten percent by investing in a risk-free government bond, mm-hmm. why would I invest in the share market and take all that risk and maybe also get ten percent? Mm-hmm. So, so when when rates are, are really 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 low, as as they have been for a long time now. You can see, you can see, and justify some some very high market valuations. But mm. when that reverses, 
or if and when that reverses, um, <laughs> that that goes the other way. So that's why it's it's so important. That's why the market is is worried about it. Not the first time it's been worried about it. We had we had some inflation fears not too long ago, and they kind of we kind of moved past that. But again, it's right. rearing its 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 ugly head again. And it's one of these things with with economics where nothing's black and white, and mm-hmm. you actually. You know, here in Australia, we're below our target band of, of inflation. We, we want more inflation. Yeah. Um, well, so do the Yanks, yeah. right? And all of a sudden they've got it and they're not sure what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a conundrum, but it is forcing mm-hmm. people to rightly, I think, look, at, look right. at some of the prices they're paying for some of these uh, companies. And, and, the, and the quality and prospects of the company are a, se- mm-hmm. a secondary kind of thing in, in, the, in this yeah. context. And they're saying, well... Am I? Is it sensible to to buy a stock on a PE of fifty <laughs> if mm-hmm. interest rates are going to be going up to any meaningful degree? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and and that's what the market's worried about. And it's kind of one of those questions too of like one of the one of the biggest. So humans are weird, right? We're kind of evolutionarily handicapped a little bit in the sense that we are held back from really understanding the world as it is because we came from the savannah and we're still used to that. And the, the from and to, I'll explain this a little bit, but um, we kind of assume that what was is real and okay, and therefore what is now is somehow the change or the difference or to be explained, right? And so to some degree, you can reasonably say, hang on, yeah, okay, so rates might go up, therefore share price might go down, therefore that's bad. Now that's, that's if you like higher share prices, un- unavoidably true. But it's also true that it may well just have been that share prices were too expensive in the first place because rates were never going to stay that low for that long. And yeah. so it's always worth thinking about whenever you have these conversations, you know, I don't want to turn it into a philosophical conversation, but people say, oh, share, why is the share price down 20%? And it can be because the company sucks or it can be, well, the share price was too high to start with. In which case mm-hmm. the error or the, you know, the question of, you know, is this, is this now worse or is this now bad or, you know, which is right, which is wrong? Sometimes it responds to real information and from a reasonable place to another reasonable place. Other times, as we know, with markets, they are voting machines, as Ben Graham famously said. And so there is some element of just, this is kind of, you know, <laughs> the, the market is, is adjusting its expectations. Did it overshoot yeah. on the way up? Maybe. Will it overshoot on the way down? Maybe. Maybe it didn't mm. do either. Maybe it was perfectly va- valued both times. Um, but you're right, that, that's the key challenge. And I think both, you know, for inflation itself, um, for um, interest rates specifically, for share prices, for the growth of individual companies. I mean, this kind of gets real again. And to some degree, maybe, maybe we're seeing either a new normal or maybe just going back to the old normal where inflation used to be, you know, here and it used to matter and it's kind of now back. Now, we should say, by the way, this is no no certain thing. Um, last year's inflation, well, well, the price we're comparing against, were last April. And by the way, there was kind of a thing going on last April. So maybe this is just a flash in the pan bounce back or maybe it's because of short-term supply constraints that are pushing prices up because there's only so many widgets to go around because everyone's still getting their supply chains back so maybe this is completely transitory uh but the market is certainly mindful that it may not be and if it's not then there are some real there are some real potential issues right yeah oh yeah definitely i mean this is this has been the challenge for anyone with uh, a value-oriented approach and yeah. and I, I i do increasingly hate the delineation between growth and value and all these i, agree. I think yep. i'm with charlie munger i think all sensible investing is value investing and i think i yep. could buy a stock on a p of a thousand and still argue the case for value so it's you yeah, know there's, there's nuance Absolutely. and there's, there's con and and there's context there but the hard thing for those of us that that have had or like to keep an eye on value is that been you know for a while there it's been 
the only way to sort of say, yes, okay, I, I can buy this at, and, and make a sensible uh, argument for it mm-hmm. is to have that, that assumption that inflation and, and therefore interest rates are going to be lower for longer. Right. And, and, and that, was, that was the narrative. But, but now the narrative is, is potentially changing. Um, yep. And so I, I think uh, I always of the view that tr- trying, to, trying to know what interest rates are going to do is diabolically hard. You know, it's like predicting <laughs> FX rates. Yeah. It's just yeah. you know, I've never seen anyone, expert or otherwise, be able to do it with any kind of consistency or accuracy. So it's just yeah. not because yeah. they're dumb, just because it's, it's diabolically hard. It's like, why, why can we put a man on the moon, but we can't predict the weather? Well, it's, <laughs> the, the, the answer is it's yeah. easier yeah. to put a man on the moon, right? Um, right. It's, it's just and, genuinely hard. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just really really hard yeah. to do, yeah. but yeah. I and, and but rather than be paralysed by that, I I just yeah. try to sort of be sensible about it and sort of say, well, look, I'm a long term investor. I I literally am investing for decades. Yeah. I am going to assume. I don't know how. I don't know the magnitude. I don't know the timing. <laughs> right. But I think it's probably even if it's just for the purposes of a margin of safety and just just putting a bit of a bit of a buffer in, into your assumptions. Yeah. I've always I've always thought it prudent. To expect that that rates will normalize to mm. someone, maybe mm. that's not the right word, but certainly, certainly, there's more upside risk <laughs> to, to yeah. use that phrase than others, and so, <laughs> so it's it's it, it. I think the market's being sensible in what it's doing. Mm. Mm. Oh, let me let me take that. You, you've given me a wonderful segment because the next place I was going to take you before we go back to our, our Alyssa's own questions was that exact problem of where does the you know this the, the kind of I, you know phrases I hate. You know, I hate upside risk, which is the one you just kind of talk about. The, the, <laughs> so other, one, the other one, the other one, the other one I desperately hate is um, is rotation because it's just like it's oh, one of those finance terms. Like, it. Oh, yeah, it's a rotation from value to growth. Except that sometimes it's actually true, and I don't so much hate the term as I hate the fact that people actually believe it's a thing and should do it. So you know the, mm. the ter- terms yeah. kind of just make sense because they make sense uh, to some degree. Yep. Um, which reminds me, I think I think you were you, one of my, my great my Motley Fool podcast invented terms. Uh, I, I won't I won't mention now, but if you if you want to go back through the archives, uh, I, I, I do like inventing terms. Um, I, the opposite <laughs> opposite of correction. Do you remember? I no, I don't actually. Oh. I, I'm sure I will if you remind me. Come on, you've teased it. Anyway, now, I, you've got to say. <laughs> I, I, well, I did I did in passing, and as a, as a as a complete brain snap slash uh, inspiration. Try and invent the word uprection to the opposite of correction. <laughs> That's right, and that was the reaction it's, I got the first time around. <laughs> sounds a bit naughty. Sounds a bit well, naughty. Wasn't, no, it wasn't supposed to be. I, you've just got an yeah. interesting mind. Obviously, I, it was just, it seemed like a very reasonable <laughs> thing. Anyway, so. Um, but but the whole but you know so that's what I wanted to, to mention. So yes, there's volatility. Yes, there's inflation. <laughs> But there is there has been a for the last oh geez, almost six months now actually so from November when the vaccines were first announced there's been a real move away from in in broad now these are broad strokes right always differences always exceptions away from air quotes growth to air quotes value and again the terms suck and I get it I agree with you completely and I hate the term rotation except that that's kind of what's happening miners are on the ascendant in the ascendancy banks are in the ascendancy operate you know kind of big industrial conglomerates doing remarkably well. I mean, I, I Berkshire Hathaway shares, they have done spectacularly in the last six months. Um, you don't say that very often. Um, mm. And and yet, I also own Kogan. I've mentioned that a million times, as you know. It's down two-thirds from those November highs. Um, Afterpay has fallen from 150 to 89-ish. Um, mm. You know, there's... The, 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 and, and by the way, the market's also setting new highs. <laughs> you know, we had, we had an all-time closing high record 
on Tuesday, just gone. So there's kind of, you know, it's the old duck analogy, maybe the iceberg analogy, right? What you see on top is the market slowly going higher, but there is a lot going on at share price level. And, and as much as I don't like the terms either, you kind of, we've kind of got to live in this world a little bit because it kind of, I don't know if it explains or categorizes or just, you know, whatever, but this is all, other investors are doing this stuff. They are literally walking away from the darlings of the, two, of the 2020 recovery and they're well and truly back into the industrial, you know, stodgy stocks. Um, is it because of inflation? Is it because of vaccination? Is it because they were undervalued and there's just simply opportunity there and you've got to get the money from somewhere to buy the undervalued stuff? What, what's going on below the surface? <sighs> I, I don't... Well, I, the, the short answer is I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think any of us can know for sure, but I, but I, I would I would posit that it's um, it, it's exactly that. It's, it's, it, it's a bit like the, the Keynesian beauty contest, right? It, it's more about... People see this narrative playing out. They, um, it, 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 it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to extent. You see a lot of other people doing it. It seems as though that's the way it's going. So we all start to do it. There's a bit of follow the leader kind of stuff that's going on there. And that's always the case with markets. So that's, that's probably part of it. It is probably a very real recognition of what is going mm-hmm. on where some some less less attractive companies than the tech superstars have just been forgotten about and people are finally mm. recognising value there and at the same time recognising that no matter how great these other companies are, they're, they're not worth an infinite amount. So it, it's all yeah. of that. It's all of that stuff yeah. that, that's that's going into it. Um, I You know what? I, I tend to – I'm a very bottom-up kind of guy. I, I yeah, tend right. to think it's it, it's it's – easier it's still hard but it's easier mm. than rather than look at this agglomeration of the market you know hundreds and hundreds of companies all mushed together mm. and different mm. weightings and stuff which gives us an overall read I, I i much prefer to look at an individual uh company level um I, I think that's that's a bit easy i think i would encourage investors to do that uh as well because as you say under the surface there's a lot a lot of different stuff going on and a lot of different exceptions to the rule so mm. um yeah I, I don't know what's my point <laughs> my point is it's very difficult i don't know uh keep 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 your eye on the specific and 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 try not to generalize too much with what's happening at, at, at the higher level there's always opportunity in the market when it's super hot there's there's pockets of value you know when, when it's when it's when it's all bombed out there's still plenty of bad investments out there so you, you've just you've just got to you've just got to focus on on the on yeah. on the immediate stuff i think it's hard isn't it i um I, t- I can't disagree with any of that, uh, with the exception that you know Buffett's made the point that you know if rates stayed low, rate shares were cheap. There is some mm. kind of macro overlay you kind of can't avoid, right? Like you can be a bottom up guy. I, I'm exactly the same, by the way. I, I occasionally find themes I like via bottom up stock picking, if that makes sense. I occasionally do have a few stocks from the same kind of idea in my portfolio because they're either all undervalued or they're all got opportunity or something. But I don't, I'm not I'm not a thematic mm. guy. I'm a bottom up guy. But I also have to say, it's up to some degree, you know, the, the, the discounted cash flow valuation that we've mentioned before is is predicated on the level of interest rates, right? So how much you pay for a stock, how, what it's actually yeah. worth, when you should sell it. It's it's really hard, right? It's, it's hard to it's hard to not be a macro guy when you're not a mm. macro guy, um, mm. because it, it, it these are such unusual times with rates so unusually low, you kind of can't avoid it, right? Because I don't know what proportion of your investment from here, no matter what you buy, is kind of rates related, isn't it? It is, it is, but be, 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 because there are uh, a plethora of other factors also at play, some some can be more dominant at others. So despite yeah. what, we can make big generalizations about the tech stocks. I'll, I'll argue that there are some tech stocks out there that 
still look really cheap and interest rates could go much higher and and that um, re- reduces their attractiveness but they might still mm-hmm. prove to be attractive on their own merits um, yeah yeah exactly if that if that makes sense so you you, you yeah. can't do it and I, and I go back to my initial point as well is just like don't don't try and be too cute with trying to predict all of these things just just fold in some expectation of that anyway mm-hmm. and you'll be you, you'll 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 account for it and if you're wrong um well you know that's that's okay you might get a better return than you were initially expecting yeah yeah nice all right let, let's move on from that I, I think it's um i think it's you know it's something that we're going to keep an eye on uh probably bottom line message we should expect volatility from all sorts of areas this time it's interest rates so it'll be something else next time eventually as you say value will out um i don't mean value is in value investing i just mean you know the value of a company's future will be recognized in its share price um eventually sometimes it takes yep. a while to wait sometimes it can be weeks months even years quite honestly in some cases but if you're right the market will reward you almost all the time if you're wrong the market will also <laughs> let you know eventually mm. uh, but don't let the market tell you what to think in the short term is probably the key message right if you're picking stocks you're picking stocks you think you're right and the market's wrong so if the market was right there'd be no stocks to pick we're looking for undervalued stocks we're looking for unappreciated stocks we're looking for stocks the market's wrong about that's how you beat the market um, so just remember that because when you then buy them and then wonder why they're not going up or why the market's not suddenly seeing it your way well, you were the one who picked that fight, right? You, you said to the market, Haha, you're wrong, I'm buying this stock. Um, I'm, being, I'm being a bit flippant, but like that's really what we're doing, right? We're saying, hey, when I buy stock X, I'm buying it because I think the market's wrong about it. To expect the market's going to all of a sudden sit my way is crazy and kind of you know a bit egotistical and a bit self-centered. And that's, we are as humans, that's what we do, right? But just remember that we might be in the middle of our own universes, but we're on the outside of everybody else's. And so, um, yeah, but yeah. as I said, if, if you know, Woolworths eventually does $100 billion in sales, well, you'll do pretty well owning Woolworths shares, right? Whether or not the shares drop or increase 20% the next month or so is not going to matter. It's the long term that, that really does count. Well, the interesting, I've mentioned this before too, but you go back in time and, and look at the best performing stocks that you can possibly think of, you know, like, like Domino's is a great example, right? Like a pizza, we, we, we spend so much time focusing about all the tech stocks and the rest of it. This is a pizza company and they've just done so incredibly well, you know, CSL's done brilliantly yep, over, yep, over the yep, long term. Yeah. You know, all of them, you know, pick, pick your, your, your favorite star stock where we don't even have to do predictions. We just yeah. look backwards and say, which yeah. one performed the best <laughs> and the, and the best performing stocks have yep. massive drawdowns along the way. Yes. So yeah, it's, right. it's, it's it, you know, so it's kind of like to think that if I just pick really great stocks and I buy them at a really sensible price, I'm never going to suffer these pullbacks. Well, it just it, <laughs> right. it doesn't happen. So it, it's it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and if you're like me, usually when you buy is the day before that it drops thirty percent and stays there for a year. <laughs> you know, and it's, it sucks. It happens to me all the yep. time. Yeah. But yep. but at the same time, as you say, the the thing that keeps you going is that knowing that you know if if the thesis is right, it will out and. Yep. It's yeah. like Peter Lynch said: all the great, all the best returns come in the second and third year, in which you own them. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. So if yeah. if you're yeah. the kind of person that can can weather that storm, and yeah. what gives you the ability to weather the storm is just just having a high degree of conviction because you've done the work, then you know just roll with the punches, and it's it's the price you pay for outperformance. Yeah, I'm I'm going to quick. I was going to move on. I want to make one last quick point because. I mentioned the fact the macro thing and the interest rates matter, and they do to some degree. Uh, but over the long term, the company's quality, the longer you own a stock and the better the stock is, the, the less the market has to do with its long-term returns, right? If, mm. if you know, let's pick, um, I'm trying to pick, what's, what's a one that's done well that I don't own, mate? I don't want to keep talking. About. Let's say Apple, right? Um, if, mm. if interest rates went up from 1% to 5% 
over Apple's time, maybe that drops 10, 20, 30, 40% off your return. But if you've yeah. made 4,000% on Apple, you really don't care. <laughs> if, you, if you've made 3,600% rather than 4,000%, well, do you care? Well, of course you do. I mean, some level you'd want the extra money, right? But you know, if you've got a, if you've got a crappy company, you pay too much for it and it's not going to grow very fast, then you are in a hiding to nothing if you get the macro stuff wrong or you get your maths wrong. If you're, yep. and I'm not saying only buy growth stocks, by the way, but I am saying the longer you own a company and the better it does over time, just the the the, the smaller the external factors, um, the smaller influence the external factors have on your eventual return, right? So there's something yep. there too, to the extent you don't want to or shouldn't, I argue you shouldn't, try and try and forecast the macro, just buying quality and that, that has long-term potential. It sounds obvious, right? And it sounds like it's not that easy. You go to go and work on it and find it and that sort of stuff. But gee, that's the, the right way to go, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's the same reason why I don't really sweat exchange rates too much. Right. You know, like if a company earns all its money in yep. the US yep. and, exactly. and the Aussie dollar goes up. That's bad news for a company. But, you know, is that is that going to be the dominant factor over five years? Even if the Aussie dollar goes from 78 cents to 98 cents, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be felt, but you're still going to be okay. And I, I just I just one more point on what you were saying there. It's just like the, the trouble with finance is, is that – the, the more complicated something sounds, the more we're inclined to believe it's right. We we like yeah. to think that more complicated is better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you know? And yeah. but yeah. The, yeah. It, and people roll their eyes, and you sort of say, <laughs> "Oh, buy quality and buy it for the long term, yeah. and just yeah. put it in red." It sounds dumb, and it sounds negligent, and it sounds mm. too easy. But it's true. It's genuinely, yeah, right. genuinely true. And you've got these guys out there that are sitting in front of four different screens in a supercomputer, mm-hmm. trading a gazillion times a day and worrying about every single like metric under the sun. And then you've got, you know, your grandma who's just regularly buying a basket of quality companies and not doing much else. I, I know which one I would, would, would be confident mm-hmm. of outperforming over the long term and, and having a lot less stress along the way. It, yeah. it, 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 but don't, don't, don't be... Don't be seduced by complexity. In fact, seek out simplicity when it comes to your investing because that is, it's the big things that are eternal, the big things that never change. And as yep. you say, buy quality, buy for the long term, diversify, dollar cost average, job done. You're going to do really well. There you go. Mate, let's go to a question from Chris. Let's get out of our, our own heads into someone else's. Chris says, hi, Scott. I've got a question for the mailbag, sir. Well, don't have to call me sir, but, but feel free. Um, I wonder if I could be knighted. Well, no, I can't be knighted anymore, can I? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> One Chris day. Says, <laughs> One day. Chris says, here we go. Firstly, I'd say your podcast is the Rolls Royce of investment podcasts. Thank you, Chris. Speaking of that, he says, oh, here we go. We've been set up. I noticed that Rolls Royce trades on the pink sheets under three separate tickers in the North American market. Any idea why this share structure exists? Also, do you, uh, do Andrew and yourself have a view on this company, thanks from Chris. Maybe you are you sound like a Rolls Royce kind of guy. You've got probably two or three in the in the garage. Ah, oh, at least you know, I, <laughs> one for the weekend, one to go to the shops, um, one, one for the butler to drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, he's got to get around somehow. So, um, I, I actually, I don't, I can't tell you about the uh, the capital structure and the listings. I'm not, I'm not familiar with. It. I'm surprised to hear that they've got pink sheets. Um, uh, I can, I so, can, I can this one quickly, mate. While you just to, okay. so you can, you can move on. Um, yeah. Basically, if you're listed primarily overseas in a non-US market, but you want to give US-based investors a chance to buy your stock, um, you can use the pink sheets to do that. Uh, the pink sheets are an old-fashioned term because literally they used to, back back pre-computers when you and I were young, mate, 
Um, mm. They used to print out the share prices on pink paper for this particular market. It was called an over-the-counter market. And because it was printed on pink paper, they were called the pink sheets, unsurprisingly. Uh, or you might see it called the OTC market or the over-the-counter market. It's, mm. it's just a, um, a, a very lightly regulated, which kind of matters sometimes, but not in this case, way to get access to some stocks. Now, some are penny dreadful rubbish stocks you never, ever, ever want to own. It's also though, an easy way for large international companies to give Americans a chance to buy their shares. And so mm-hmm. you can list on the pink sheets. Now, I don't know if there's, don't know why there's two or three. My guess would be that they're, London, they're probably listed in London. They might be listed in Germany or something else, or there may be secondary listings. So each one of those would have its own you know, reference sheet. But effectively, the pink sheets are just a way for American investors and I guess Australian investors, if you're buying on the US exchanges, um, to get access to the underlying security in London in this case for Rolls-Royce, um, in, a, in a simple, easy way, it's reasonably low cost. The reason I say the regulation doesn't matter is because the primary company is regulated in the UK. So I'm not saying regulation doesn't matter, I'm not saying buy anything on the pink sheets, but I am saying if you're buying something on the pink sheets that is a, a share of something listed somewhere else and that other country regulation is sufficient, you don't have to worry about the pink sheets themselves. Do be careful because volumes tend to be low, so you can often end up with big what they call buy-sell spreads. It's just jargon to say that if there's not many sellers and you're the only buyer, you might have to pay up. Uh, equally, if you're trying to sell and there's not many buyers, you might have to take a, a low price. Just be a little bit careful there, but that's why they're listed there. Uh, what about Rolls-Royce, the company? Interesting. Right? So um, I, I, the automotive industry is extraordinarily tough. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very, very, very difficult one. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Japanese have done exceptionally well in this yeah. because they're just, they're just so, so good at it. But it's, it yeah. tends to be very, very low margin kind of business. So I think what I like about Rolls-Royce is that they, um, they've, they've very deliberately target the, the very top end mm-hmm. of the market. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. in, and this is true of retail in general, you either want to be focused on um, the, the cheap end or the premium end because you can only be attacked from one direction. So if your focus is we're just going <laughs> right. to we're, – we're not going to be – we're not going to be the best, but yep. – we're going to yep. be the cheapest, yep. um, and that that is your focus. You can actually you can actually build up a bit of a competitive sort of edge there. If, if you're at the premium end of the market, and mm. same kind of thing. If you're in between those two, you can kind of be attacked from both sides. Yep. So I, I like I like with Rolls Royce where they're very deliberate, and Tesla is something to be said here too with Tesla too, and their their market positioning as well. But yeah, they, they they've I I, I like there there is. It's like uh, luxury handbags or Rolexes or any of these mm. kinds of things. Those mm. businesses, um, th- there's some. What you're buying is a very well manufactured vehicle, uh, yeah. very high quality. But what you're really buying, let's be honest, is status. <laughs> you, you're, you're buying. I, I could give you a Rolls. I could not you. I could give most people a, a, a Rolls Royce <laughs> hey. that was everything in in, in name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just yeah. know. I know you. I know that you wouldn't be so silly. But but for a lot of people, I could I could give you a car that yeah. was identical to a Rolls Royce, yeah, but didn't totally. have didn't have the RR on the front, and they would pay a lot less for that. So it's like Absolutely. a lot of the knockoff sort of handbags that you might buy in Asia yeah, and places yeah. like that, which, you know, really the quality is probably, well, it's not as good, but it's not, you're buying yeah. the brand. You're, you're buying a Rolls because you, when you go down the street, you want heads to turn. It, we're, we're, we're peacocks, right? We, we just, we're just wanting, we're, yeah, we're totally. wanting to show off. Yeah, and yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, have, yeah. and that is, that is very, very hard for me to attack. 
So I, I can have incredible engineering, a wonderful, wonderfully produced vehicle, but I'm not Rolls Royce. And that's, that's why Rolls Royce has now entered the lexicon as a phrase. It's like, uh, you know, it, 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 you, you can be the Rolls Royce of software, the Rolls yeah, Royce of, right, right. of whatever. And that is, that is very powerful. So I think I want to say from memory that they've actually got a pretty good long-term history. Um, mm. Is that the case? I'm not sure. That's a very good question. I don't. I don't follow Rolls Royce the business, um, so I really have absolutely no idea of their long-term success. I would assume they're still around. So that says something, right? There's, a, there's obviously yes. a business that, that still exists for for very good reasons. Um, so I, I can assume they've done okay, but I, I don't actually have the numbers. I'm, I'm desperately stalling while I pull up the chart here. It hasn't been a great five mm-hmm. years for them. They really did struggle during the uh, during the COVID uh, recession. They fell from um, three. Oh, here's this, 350 pounds a share. This is in July 2018, down to a low of 50-ish pounds a share, 53 pounds a share. Mm, so there you go. Mm. They lost they lost six-sevenths of their value. Call that, what, 14, 6, uh, 80%. <laughs> that's, a, yep. that's a reasonable whack. Now, they've made some of that back. They've doubled since, uh, but they're still more than two-thirds down on their uh, 2018 highs. They're actually, even further down, they're actually $434 a pound, sorry, a share back in 2013. So... Uh, they did had done okay for a while, but uh, they haven't they haven't changed quite as much as they would otherwise have liked. Yeah, I can see. So it's a bit of an eightfold increase between nineteen ninety and twenty thirteen. It's had exceptionally well for a while there, but yeah, it hasn't been good lately, is it? it? We should probably do some more homework before we do this, but there's there's probably a very good very good reason for that. I I don't know what it is. Yep. Sorry. Um, obviously, Rolls Royce these days, of course, in aerospace and defence. So, um, a slightly different business. Making the the jet, the jet engines, which is probably part of the concern. Oh, of course. course. Okay. If you're putting engines, yes, you're right. if you're putting engines into, yes. into in a planes, um, there's a very good chance that with uh, no planes being ordered, your business kind of sucks up for a little while. Um, I would imagine it'll come back reasonably well. I am not at all com- sure about this company enough to give a view, but I would say if it has any chance of recovering and going on to return to its previous glory it's really cheap right now so if you if you're like mm. rolls royce a couple of uh, a couple of years ago you should love it now as long as it can actually return to the well, what, I, let me th- find an aviation analogy if it can resume its soaring if it can rise like a phoenix from the ashes I, i'm getting nothing all right let's move on <laughs> from this particular question we've done that one to death but hopefully that answers your question at least partly chris um i, I would say by the way i have so just to finish off the of the pink sheet stuff i would have no issue at all buying it on the pink sheets um as long as you're careful with the buy sell spread because it is a, a uk listed company that has uk regulatory oversight um and so you're you're pretty safe um i probably would also though by the way just buy the uk shares if you have access to that market so there you go Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, here's a, here's a question from Mark, Andrew, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask this one to Sufferance, Mark. You've, you've been warned. He said, I've got Andrew. I've moved my retirement location from France to the Caribbean for at least the next nine months. Attached a photo from our mountain hike overlooking the island and our location. I hope you're just a tad envious. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thanks, Mark. That's uh, great, mate. Yeah, love, love it. Thanks. Thanks. For, yeah, mate. I, I'm 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 here. Work. I'm here at working answering your question for you. You're bloody sunning yourself in the ca- anyway. Um, all right. Anyway, he says, uh, but he does say, I like this, and here's here's the inspiration for you and I and everyone else. It's the result, he says, of a lifetime of investing. Buy my first apartment when I was 21. Well done, mate. All right. Uh, in nice. Sunday's mailbag, he says the last question related to a Nasdaq ETF which is NDQ on the ASX, and whether it would be better value to buy a NASDAQ ETF on the US market instead. 
And then you guys want to compare NASDAQ correlating to the QQQ code on the US market. I spreadsheet both. He said, I've owned an NDQ for over 12 months. Then he goes through with some performance. He basically says, uh, 40 months at the end of last year, the US one outperforming the Australian one. Year to date, they are closer, but they're still an outperformance by a lesser amount, maybe 1%. It's difficult to tell because of daily volatility, he says. Um, so that, that's a, that's an interesting interesting point. I, I don't expect, Mark, that that's a long-term result. Uh, worth worth thinking about what's kind of driving that. It could be just simply fees. Uh, it could be currency. As you say, the unfortunate reality, particularly it's been so volatile recently, it's hard to, it's hard to really follow. But my, my speculation, if I was a betting man, uh, would be... Uh, that it's probably either uh, fees or or the way the currency is working. It is um, there is always what they call tracking error, and this is one of those. I won't get. I didn't go into detail last week. I'm not going to do it in this week, but a week before. Tracking error basically is the the fund has to make the trades to keep up, and so there is a chance that it's different, and that's just the simple reality. And of course, capitalising fees over an extended period of time would also make a meaningful difference. Uh, I can't mm. talk to specific ones. Um, what I would say though is. The, the, the original answer still holds, which is there should be no difference. To the extent there is a difference, that's where the opportunity or the potential cost is. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I don't think it's possible to know looking forward what those tracking errors are likely to be or which one's going to outperform. But I would say what it is possible to do is always, as my general advice for everybody, go for the ETF as long as it's run by a, by a trusted, um, uh, reputable provider. Just go with the lowest fees because that you know you can you can you can guarantee. All else being equal, lowest fees wins. So I would have a look at that. All right. Yep. Here's his question though, Ram. He says, my big question is a tax question, but don't be scared, says Mark. Selling, <laughs> to our normal people, selling NDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 ETF here in Australia, normal people, he says, pay 30% capital gains tax. Or if we hold them more than 12 months, we only pay 15% capital gains tax when we sell them. If we buy the US version, QQQ, or any US stock, he says, do we still get the 12-month holding reduction from 30 to 15%? Mark. So that's I'll the let question. You, I'll let you go first. <laughs> nice. That, you, you, you could have pushed me in a hole, but I actually know the answer to this one. So, uh, Mark, you're right, to ask, you're right to ask the question. So here, Mark's question is basically, look, if I buy an Australian asset when I sell it, um, the capital gains tax rules apply here, and I get a discount for holding it more than 12 months. The question is broadly, if I buy something outside Australia – do I get the same benefit? And the answer is yes, you do. But, well, I'll say but in the sense that uh, so you get as long as you qualify for the Australian dedu- uh, reduction, you get the US one as well. You need to be an Australian resident for tax purposes, of course, uh, but assuming you are, then your capital gains are taxed in the country in which you are resident for tax purposes, which sounds obvious, but it's worth saying because it matters. <laughs> you, can, you can live, I, I could live in the US for six months, but still be an Australian resident for tax purposes, there are Americans living here who are US residents for tax purposes and they live here. And that's why the for tax purposes um, suffix is important. So if you are an Australian resident for tax purposes, you are eligible for a capital gains tax discount. And because capital gains are taxed in the country you live, not where the gains are made, then the same rules apply. Do you want to add to the ramp? I was gonna. I was gonna say the same thing, but you've said it. I, for I me. knew you. I just. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Thanks. Man. I want. I wanted you to have a chance to, to go first. <laughs> I spent way too long at these sort of things in the past. All right, but here is a really different one. I love this question from Sean. I like the question. Well, we love all our questions for all of our, our listeners, of course. This is a really cool one because ask us to think long term. His high Scott and fools and foolettes. I think. I think fools is a non-gendered term, Sean. I think you can call us all fools from memory. 
Uh, but yeah, I like full oats. Over the next yeah. three to five years, midterm, maybe long term, what thematics or trends do you see outperforming? Which markets or geographies, mm. which areas will perform best? Now, he says, before answering the question, I want to make the point that most people listening are probably retail investors who make most of their income from their profession. He says, for me, construction, not the stock market. That is why I choose ETFs and indices. That makes sense. So he's mm. basically given us some ETF options that he likes, things he thinks are going to go well. So he's, I think he's asking for kind of ETF-y kind of thematics, which is fair. He said, I'll go first thematically. Now, he mentions the Hack ETF, which is cybersecurity. The Earth ETF, now that, that's an ERTH. It's a relatively new ETF in the Australian market. The Earth ETF is the BetaShares Climate Change Innovation ETF. So he's banking on cybersecurity. He's banking on climate change action. And ESPO, which is the eSports ETF. So think about all the people who are playing I don't know what they. I'm not cool enough to know what they're playing. Is it Call of Duty and stuff? They're still playing that, or is there other stuff they're playing now online? Oh, uh, Call of what Duty! Cool you're you're showing your age. Oh, Apex I, mean, I, could, I, could, I could have said. Um, I could have said Doom. Fortnite. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. 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 There's. 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 A, it's big business. It's much bigger than Hollywood. It's. It's huge. It's. It's a really right. exciting. And that's the. And that's what the ETF is. The esports ETF tracks all that stuff because people do it for a quid mm. these days. Which I, again, I'm clearly old because I can't imagine watching someone else play. I don't, I don't. I love computer games. But if I'm going to sit there and someone's playing, I'm watching. I'm like, I don't want to. Play, I can play it myself. I don't need to watch anyone. <laughs> I don't get it. Anyway, that there's Sean's themes. Geographically, he says, ASX and wealthier countries in Asia. He expects to outperform. Thanks for making us smarter investors. Full on, Sean. Sean, mate, thank you for the question. Also, thank you for um, for advancing an answer. I love the fact you've kind of gone. Hey, I've got a question for you. And here's my thoughts. What do you guys reckon? So I love that. Thank you, Sean, for, for asking the question. Thank you for sharing your responses as well. Um, because I answered first on the last question, Andrew, thankfully, I'm going to kick it to you. Um, if you had to pick some themes to outperform over three to five years or longer, where would you go thematically? What, what areas of the market do you think will outperform? Yeah, I, I agree with, with, with Sean. Cybersecurity is going to be much bigger in the future. Um, uh, anything related to uh, renewables, cli- uh, climate change, I think there's big opportunities there. Esports is definitely going to be huge. I'd add AI to that list. I'd add generally just software in general. I know it feels as though it's a bit long in the tooth. We're, we're, I've said it before. We're, we're, at, we're at very early stages here. Um, I, I think, And I think the pace of, of all of these things are going to... Everything, everything is 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 J curving <laughs> at the moment. It's it's a really fascinating thing, and the the pace of of change that we're living at at the moment has never been faster. And I think mm. that we are going to see a lot of these things. Anything that's sort of technology enabled, there's going to be a long way to run. So mm. I, I'd agree with all of that. Um, uh, I think one other thing that is really fascinating is in the area of what they call Synbio, is what the cool kids are saying, which is synthetic biology and and oh, uh, that, yeah, it's f- fascinating with the CRISPR uh, oh, tool yeah. and that. that they're doing. They're just doing amazing stuff. When I was at uni, the Human Genome Project was on an international collaborative effort. Cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Now you can sequence, a, you know, some DNA on a on a, a benchtop machine. You know, in an mm. afternoon. It's just, it is it is phenomenal. And there's going to be huge value unlocked in in all of these areas. So it's the future is is potentially really exciting. Um, mm, yeah. What I would say though is that with all of that, history would suggest that. 
there's probably going to be a huge bunch of losers and some spectacular winners within mm-hmm. all of that. So where I get a little bit concerned, we see it with oh electric vehicles. I should have mentioned that as well. That probably comes under the earth, the earth sort of banner. But and I know we've given this example before, but it's it's like when when steam engines came along and everyone said, oh, this is going to be the future. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a gazillion dollars sort of made. It's like, well, overall as an industry, yes, but generally speaking, in terms of individual specific investments no same with airlines same with a whole range of different things same with yeah. the internet when that first came along remember the late 90s and everyone was saying oh the internet's going to be huge and it's going to be life-changing well yeah it it it, it, it was it is um but almost everything you touched in that space was was just setting money on fire <laughs> yeah um yeah so so what generally speaking when these when these thematics are at play as the industry is is maturing, there's just a lot of competition before an eventual winner starts to emerge, and and then starts to a just become financially viable, can stand on its on, on its own feet. But then all just so develop all these scale advantages and competitive advantages that just entrench them further. Mm-hmm. Back 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 in the days of you know Ask Jeeves and Alta Vista and that you know <laughs> Google was just as likely to Mate, we to just win. Everybody under forty five. <laughs> right, you know, ask but Jeeves. like, you What's know, ask Jeeves? <laughs> Yahoo, right? Like all of I these, know. they, they you, you it would have, it, it, it seems so obvious now that Google was was always going to be the winner. Well, it wasn't that obvious no, it wasn't back at in all. the day, it was not at all. And you, you, you could have picked up, you, you know, a dozen of of those search engine companies and and done very badly if you didn't happen to get Google. So, yeah. so that's that's where I think the ETF approach does make a bit of sense if if that's the approach that you're going to take because you just you you're casting a wider net um you, yeah. you're going to have a lot of disappointment in that but you you've got a more chance you've got a big a ch- bigger chance of, of catching the eventual mm-hmm. winner um so yeah they're, they're, they're my thoughts what what areas are, are you excited i tell you can i can i can i flip it around on its head yeah. before i throw it to you i would not be in and this is going to again make me sound um i don't want to sort of be ideological, or whatever. But I, I'd be not investing in coal. <laughs> like you know, I think there's going to be a lot of stranded assets there. I know that there's some deep value plays that probably make sense mm-hmm. in that, but I, I think it's going to be a very tough area to make money. So there's, you can invert that as well and say it's like Charlie Munger. Tell me where I'm going to die so I don't go there. I think there's a bunch of <laughs> bunch of areas uh, like coal yeah. and, yeah. and that which, yeah. which I wouldn't I wouldn't touch. It's it's really hard, isn't it? Um, so. Yeah, <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it, it. I think to your point, it, it kind of comes into investing style, right? Like, so Whitehaven Coal, for example, just got to pull the numbers up just then. They're actually they've actually gone up by about seventy percent over the last eight months. Mm-hmm. So you say, hang on, that was you know. Now they're also down by about seventy percent over the last four years. So kind of like, you know, the question is like, what are you investing in? And that's why, uh, was it Sean? Um, the question about the, you know, the time horizon, yeah, Sean, the question about the time horizon is really, really important because we're not saying, I don't, well, maybe you are, I, you know, I, don't, I think it's probable that at some point someone makes a lot of money from coal over some short-term periods, buying it when it's super cheap and selling it when it's still cheap, for example, right? The tra- oh, yeah, sure. trading the market and making money is possible to do and, but that's not our game. Um, it's really hard to do, by the way. So the fact that someone does it doesn't mean if it's even worth trying to do. But someone might, mm. and they'll say, "See, I told you, you can make money out of out of coal." It's like, well, yeah, okay, but you know. So I think to Andrew's point, it, you know, it's very much the the, the medium long term question is the only question that we think is worth spending time on because it's the area where your odds are most likely to be in your favour. Um, mm. 
Two little Hunger Games there. So, uh, so, but, but just, just thought I'd throw it in. Back to the question. Um, here's the problem, mate. So, you mentioned the human genome. I was around as, and investing in 1988, no, sorry, 1998, 1999, 2000. When, remember Genomics? Do you remember that name? I do, yeah. Yeah. So U.S. company was got was trying that was trying the private version of the human genome project, which is the publicly publicly kind of sourced version of, of mm. trying to map human genome. Right. The trend toward CRISPR stuff was absolutely right, but Celera was yeah. an absolute dog of a stock. And in fact, if you bought every yep. human genome sequencing related company it, back in the day, can I tell you if the ETF industry had been as big twenty years ago as this today, there would have been forty eight different human genome ETFs. Right. And they yep. all would have lost a squillion dollars, even though you could have been right that, hey, the guys will do this. It will be huge and it will revolutionize medicine. Mm. And that's kind of, I mean, ironically, well, not maybe not ironically, but COVID has shown us 20 years later that being able to modify the genes is part of one of the key vaccines. So mm. the idea of like, was human genome mapping useful, valuable, a growth industry? Absolutely. Did it generate excess value for investors? No, at least not yet. Um, and so it's really hard, even to your point about the internet, like, you know, 95% of internet companies went bust. Now, if you'd had mm. Amazon on that list, you probably did well. If you bought a search engine group and Google's in there, you probably did well. So it's not that you can't do it. In fact, you know what? Google wasn't listed back then. So if you actually bought a group of internet search engines, uh, you know, the, the search engine ETF, is SRCH, somebody the code or something, um, back in, you know, 2002, you would have lost it all. Literally, like, you know, 90-something mm. percent of it. So yeah. I, that's why I only raise that because I find... Sean's question really it's probably why I'm not a thematic investor it's really hard to A get the theme right B find the appropriate ETF you then got to hope the ETF is reasonably well valued um, because you know it, it just maybe you get the right theme but you pay too much for it so you just can't make any money because that's how it works out um, or maybe you do strike it rich <laughs> maybe you do get lucky or, or maybe you're smart and you get it right and so you know is esports a thing yes are the companies in the esports ETF reasonably valued I don't know are these the ones that are going to win the esports race? I don't know. Even if they win and have high market share, do these guys actually capture the value or does it go to someone else? Like, you know, um, I mean, search is valuable, but search is valuable because search is search. Search is valuable because Google have whacked ads on there. So, you know, if, if you win search, you know, is it is it enough? So I really, really struggle with thematic stuff, I, I have to say. I would say that if you're looking for themes though, it's very, very hard for a long-term outperformance to come from a business with, or a sector with unattractive growth potential. So you mentioned coal, Andrew. That's the absolutely mm. the right one. Um, you, I would throw banking in there. I wouldn't buy a banking ETF right now because I just think, you know, how, how much growth? How much compound growth? Again, because compounds important, right? One, is there one year growth for banking? Maybe over three years, is it okay? Maybe if you if held it for ten years, you know, you've got to get compound growth of that rate to really justify it. So you've got to have something that's got enough mm. growth runway to really, really make a difference. Um, I think mm. tech has got that generally. Um, I think I would probably ha be happily buying software as a service businesses as an ETF because I think it's mm. big enough and broad enough that you'll have others added to it as some fall by the way sort of underperform. So the net total of that I think is attractive. Mm. Um, this will sound strange. I think e-commerce is a massive one. If I, if I was to buy, mm. I own plenty of e-commerce stocks by the way, but if you put together an e-commerce stock with some of the biggest and best from around the world, um, the, there's still so much growth left in terms of stealing market share from physical retail. Um, so I'd, I'd grab. I'd, I think e-commerce is a great way to have a look at. Again, do valuation work, but I think that's a that's a key one. Um, I think the move towards renewable energy is big. I'm not convinced that you can make have a great ETF with it because if you're buying the you know wind farms and solar farms, 
I'm not entirely convinced there's great economics of those things. Like they'll be, they're better than coal, but once they're competing against themselves, is there any surplus return there for investors? I doubt it because it's kind of hopefully in a good way. Solar panel, solar power will be commoditized. Wind, wind power will be commoditized mm. to the point where, you know, the returns. In fact, we've actually seen AGL took a write down on their wind farms in, I think it was Queensland recently, just because the economics mm. no longer were as attractive as they were when they set the thing up. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I, I just, I, I know I'm, I'm wimping out of the question a little bit, but I really, really wouldn't invest thematically. I'd, if you're on an ETF, I'd kind of go broad market ETFs, quite honestly. Um, geographically, I. <sighs> There's a real, there's a real clash of minds now about reversion to the mean. The the idea in maths and economics and life is that things revert to the mean; they go back to average. And so, generally speaking, if you have a, a sector that outperforms for a long time, it's probably due for a period of underperformance or relative underperformance. Something underperforms for a long time, decent chance it'll do well. That's kind of value investing writ large, right? It's kind of the the fundamental underpinnings. And so, if you look at developed world versus emerging markets, most people will say, "Hey, emerging markets have underperformed for ages." The big guys have done really, really well. You want to jump into emerging markets while they bounce back. You know, take advantage of that recovery. I would have normally been in that camp until about two years ago. Um, and it seems likely to me that the big guys keep getting bigger and are spreading in a way they weren't in the past. In the past, when you bought emerging markets, you bought companies that operated in those countries. And when you bought developed countries like the US, you bought companies that were predominantly US-based. And so you were kind of, they were proxies for those economies. These days... Google is everywhere. Facebook is everywhere. Amazon is everywhere. Uh, I own Amazon shares. I own Google shares. Um, uh, you know, Netflix is everywhere. Um, and so the, the kind of, the reality is as the emerging economies continue to grow, I think they're going to be increasingly colonized by developed country companies. And so you kind of, you know, if, if, if all you're left with the, I, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody I'm going to mention, if you have the Ecuadorian stock market, Maybe those companies are undervalued. Maybe they have some sort of valuation kind of, you know, recovery coming. But it's also probable that if the Ecuadorian economy keeps growing, Google Ecuador is big and Netflix Ecuador mm. is big and Apple ne- Ecuador is big and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the recovery there, I don't think it's, you can think about economic markets the same way we used to, which was a proxy for the economies because the world is now global and those global companies will keep succeeding. So I actually would, I agree with you, Sean, I would go um, develop world. I think the US markets will continue to do very, very well. Um, I have a decent amount of money invested there as a proportion of my total. I would continue to do the same. Um, I think it'll do really, really well because those big companies will keep doing well. I also think China will grow really meaningfully. I wouldn't invest there at the moment because I don't trust the Chinese government to not have a sovereign risk issue that may well dent your returns to some smaller or larger amount. not that I know they would be bad, but we've seen the, the saber rattling with Australia and America recently in the last couple of weeks, let alone months. I don't know I'd want to invest in, in Chinese companies alone or specifically, um, but certainly I expect that those businesses will be much, much bigger. And I think the next, I don't know, maybe three or four of the next 10 big multi-billion trillion dollar businesses probably come from outside the US. So I don't know, again, I don't invest thematically. If I was going to, I'd probably grab a S&P 500 ETF or a NASDAQ ETF and I'd probably grab this one BetaShares does called Asian Tigers and the code is ASIA. I own shares or units in both of those ETFs um, but I'd probably play Asia that way. Do you have any geographic thoughts, Andrew? 
Yeah, no, I, I, I'll echo what you said. I, I, am, I am very, very much focused on the ASX just because I find that there's enough ad- advantage uh, and opportunity there. And right. and I, I invest in – I own all the companies that you've mentioned in the US, but I own them all through an ETF. I just It's just easier. I've only got so much bandwidth and Lord yeah. knows I, there's, there's plenty to keep me occupied. So um, – one thing I would say with I, I very much consider thematics, but it's 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 something that I like to see in addition to very nice unit economics and traction right, in an okay. already existing business. So if you look at my portfolio, and you'll get a really good sense of that if you mm-hmm. look at um, strawman.com/strawman, you'll see see what my portfolio is. They're they're all they're all very small cap for the most part, um, tech oriented kind of companies, and they've all got really nice thematics, but. But I also and and more than a few are, are, are pre-profit, but mm-hmm. it's not just the it's not just the thematic narrative that drives them. They've yes, they've got that, mm-hmm. and yes, that's a big part of why I like them. But it's actually they've already started to deliver on that. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like I think too many investors. And I've made the point before, whether it's been with graphene or lithium or electric vehicles in general, people say, this is going to be really huge. This company has potential to be big in this space, so I'm going to invest in it. And it's like, to, to me, it's it's too early stage. If you're right, you're in at the ground floor and you're going to make a squillion dollars. But the yeah. statistics or the odds of you being right, just just statistically, is not, is, not, is not going to be high. I am prepared to miss out on some of those early gains, but then invest with a higher level of confidence. So it's a company yeah. that, yeah, here's a really nice thematic but it's actually there's runs on the board you're actually delivering according to this vision and we know with so many of these kinds of uh, companies is that you know there there are very meaningful first mover advantages Mm. Uh, there and the scale advantages that accrue to them so yeah, you would. Have, the, the best time to invest in Google was when it when it did its Series A way back in the day, yeah, right. and you you would have got an absolute you know. But if you had bought Google ten years ago mm, or after mm. it was already absolutely the dominant winner, and it, yeah, mm. yes, your your gains aren't as good, but they're still really really bloody good, and yeah, they're right. on a risk adjusted basis, and that's the key term here. They're they're even more attractive. So. So yes, thematics are really important. I, they're a big part of what I do, but I also like to see a company that's a bit further down that path that's actually delivering on on that, awesome. and it's it's not just all pie in the sky. There's there's actually something to show for it. I like it, Matt. I like it. I've got a question, a whole different um, perspective from Tim. Tim, hi Scott and Andrew. Thank you for putting out a regular podcast that is both entertaining and informative. Thank you, mate. I'm starting to get my teenager into the share market. Nice. And your podcast is perfect listening for us in the car and is working wonders in stimulating questions and interest. I would recommend that anyone who wants to set their teenagers up for a successful financial future, use it to initiate some discussion and conversation. I love that idea. Thanks, Tim. That's a really cool, really cool idea. All, all, all um, I can say is it must be a pretty long car trip given how long we <laughs> rattle on for. So, <laughs> Mate, one and a half speed, mate. That's the, that's the clue. Yeah, okay. That's how you do it. All right. <laughs> My question has nothing to do with that, though, he says. I was hoping to get you to talk a bit about margin loans. I'm someone who is very adverse to borrowing money, having never taken a loan for anything except property and education in the past. He says, not even car loans or carrying credit card debt. Even though I'm completely adverse to loans, I'm still scratching my head trying to understand why I don't start using a margin loan. My understanding is that after you apply, they transfer your shares to your account as collateral, correct? and provide access to a loan based on the shares and a loan-to-valuation ratio on those shares. Also correct. You don't pay anything for this margin loan until you borrow money to purchase shares. 
You then pay interest based on the amount you borrowed on a daily basis. If you move money back into that account, then it just goes against the borrowed amount. And as you pay daily interest, it immediately works to lower your, to your so it works to your favor to have that paid down. So that's all absolutely true. Although I would say some accounts will charge you a minimum uh, interest. So they might say your minimum loan value is X or back in the old days, I think Comsec used to charge one on a minimum balance regardless of how much you would, you uh, used that loan from memory. But I don't want to just, just check that either with Comsec or your preferred margin loan provider just to make sure there's no minimum interest being charged as a, as a, as a starting point. He then goes on to say, logic for my question is as follows. He says, using easy numbers. If I have a $100,000 portfolio and the shares average out to a 50% loan to valuation ratio, then I would be eligible for a loan of up to $100,000. The variable interest rate on that loan would be 5.5% at the moment. And average returns on the market over the last 30 years have been 8.55% from my research, he says, but you would have far more accurate numbers. That means if my diversified portfolio were to match market gains over the last 30 years, I would be 3% per annum up. Ideally, my diversified portfolio beats the market and therefore does much better than that. Now, he says the risks associated with this approach, in his view, would be all-round margin calls and getting caught short, a very real risk. As such, the mitigation would be as follows. If I'm cleared for a $100,000 margin loan, I would not take the full amount. As an easy example, I would only utilize up to 50% of the available amount. With a $150,000 portfolio and a 50 grand margin loan, using that scenario, if the market drops 30%, my portfolio would be 100,000 with a $50,000 loan. And assuming the LVR is still at 50%, even a margin call would not occur. Given there have only been a handful of falls of that magnitude in history, over the next 25 years, I have a lot left of investing. That's a very low risk for a lot of return. All right, there's a big, there's more to come uh, with, uh, with that. That's a long email, but I'll just summarize to the end. He says, I completely agree that minimizing risk is very important, but crunching the numbers and looking at the level of risk versus return, I struggle to mathematically dispute it. If I was looking for no risk in my investing, I would accept the very low interest rate of a bank account and not buy any stocks. Keep up the great work and thank you once again for helping not just myself, but my family with level-headed sound investment advice. Regards, Tim. That's a compelling case, Ram. Is he right? Yes, he is. Um, I've got a margin loan. Um, okay. Well, let me clarify. I've got a margin loan facility. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm so, in debt to a bookie and he's down the street. <laughs> <Tuesday. laughs> um, so I, I, leverage, is, leverage can be a wonderful thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and it sounds crazy when it comes to the share market, um, but all of us, almost all of us, mm-hmm. leverage to ridiculous degrees into other asset classes, which are highly concentrated. Um, property being being exactly what I'm talking about. He said, no one will will blink at at borrowing 90%, putting 10% down into one single asset and and consider that a prudent thing to do. And and in in a lot of ways it is, but with the share market, it's, it's seen as reckless. And I think I don't, so I think when you look at it objectively and you look at it sensibly as Tim has done, I think you can make a very, very sensible case to borrowing conservative amounts of money to invest in the market. And as long as the rate of return you get is higher than the interest cost of that, well, mathematically it works out very, very well. Mm -hmm. Um, So for all of that, it's right. Having said all of that, it's, it's, it, it is entirely about how you use it. And another great example, a great analogy here is credit cards. I've also got credit cards. Having said that, I don't think I've ever paid a single cent in interest. 
I mean, I need just the modern economy. You need a credit card to buy stuff online and all. Well, I know you can have debit cards and the rest of it, but it's just, it's just a super, super, super handy thing. I mean, I don't have cash now or, you know, I just I tap it on that and then I'll, I'll settle it each month and it's a very, very effective tool. And at the same time, there's someone else over there who's got $50,000 on their credit card, is rotating mm-hmm. from one to the next and it's yeah, the most right. stupid, stupid thing. So are credit cards bad? Well, no, but if you use them in a very silly way, then then yes. And and the same thing applies to a margin loan. Yeah. So I used to work in margin loan for a very brief stint, way 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 back at the start of the start of the century, and and I and one of my jobs was to call people with a margin loan. I tell you, it was the worst job I ever had. Um, and 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 then the mistake was always the same. They borrowed the full amount. Um, they had a very concentrated portfolio, and the second there was any volatility, they were forced sellers. And it was just yeah, it was the, it was the worst thing that they they could have done. Yeah. And yet yeah, we had other clients who who like Tim was suggesting. So well, yes, I, I might in theory be able to borrow this amount, but I'm going to borrow much 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 less, and I'm going to spread it around in, in a much greater degree. So the risk the risk proposition of those two things, although they're using the same facility, we're miles mm-hmm. and miles apart. So it depends on how you do it. Um, and so I, 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 having said that I have a margin line facility, I haven't borrowed any money on it for years, but I like having it there. Let's say the market crashes tomorrow mm-hmm. and it's going to take me a bit of time to sort some things out the back end. I, I just go in and can buy it like I would with a credit card, yeah. knowing yeah, yeah, that yeah, in right. a week or two I can settle. So I, so I find it really convenient for that, but I don't yeah, really have yeah. it for the purposes. So there's, there's a lot of nuance there. The other thing I would suggest is a better way of doing it if you own a home or something like that mm-hmm. is to draw down some money against your 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 home and then it's still borrowed money, but mm-hmm. you'll get a better interest rate probably. Mm-hmm. And you don't have this thing called a margin, a margin call, which means you're never a forced seller. And that's where margin loans can be really, really dangerous when you are a, first, a forced seller at exactly the wrong stage of the market. <laughs> So, so I'm going to wrap all of that up very quickly and sort of say, in principle, I agree with Tim, that, but there's a lot of context there and you've got to be extremely careful. I think debt used sensibly over the long term, as with property, can be sensible for, in, for the share market. But I think a home equity loan is a, is a more sensible way to go about it. I don't. Um, I don't have so a home, so I don't have that option. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going. We have a home. You used to have it, your own home. Yeah, you, you, he's not, yeah, he's not yes. homeless, guys. Don't worry. It's okay. He's, he's <laughs> um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna only. So I'm gonna have, have a different view, but I want to just clarify one thing you said, just for our listeners who may act on that. Um, first thing is always not, not personal advice, by the way. Um, but also, if you do pull money out of your home loan, you ideally will send will um, transfer that money directly to a brokerage account and or have those trades settled directly from that bro- from that home loan account. The reason I say that is because you need to show the ATO that the purpose of the cash taken out of your home loan was specifically for investing, for it to be tax deductible. Mm. If you just withdraw $100,000, put it in your savings account, and then three years later, buy some shares, the ATO is going to say to you, hey, <laughs> um, yeah, if you, if you can't show a direct link between, I took this money out, then bought shares with it almost immediately, versus I just did a general home, drum, home loan redraw, and then a few years later, decided to buy some shares. Trying yeah, to prove point. the ATO that was an investment purpose is going to be much, much harder. So yeah, um, do it yeah. quickly, but don't leave it. Don't leave it sitting around, of course. Um, not that I say rush into the market, just pull down the market money when you want. But the the benefit of the market, no, I agree with you, mate. I would do that rather than a margin loan for sure. But the benefit of the margin loan just makes it more obvious that it's clearly directly an investment loan. So the ATO, the purpose matters, but it needs to be a demonstrated purpose if you're going to claim a tax deduction. So that's just that. Yep. Um, I'm going to I'm going to agree with everything you say, Andrew, but I'm going to add some behavioural finance to it just just a little bit to say that. Um, do you know how many of us think we're better than average drivers? 
90% of us? Yeah, yeah. So 90% of us think we're better than the other 50%, which last time I did maths at high school, I mean, things have changed. Modern monetary theory is a thing. Maybe maybe there's more percentages to go around these days. I'm not sure. But if 90% of us think we're better than the other 50%, that's hard. Uh, so uh, I'm going to just, just caution everybody because nobody thinks they're the person who's going to get caught out with a margin loan because they're the ones that are smarter than everybody else. And maybe you are. Maybe you're one of the 10% that's genuinely better than the other 90% of, of, of drivers. Um, but some people will think they're better than everybody else and then the proverbial hits the proverbial, right? And it might even be a margin call, right? Some people will say, I'll borrow the 50, I'll invest it. Then the market crashes. Let's say you did it in February last year. The market falls 38%, right? You get completely freaked out the debt's big. You go, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I can't have any this much debt. What if there's a margin call? I'll sell the shares now, just so I don't have a margin call. Well, you've not only locked in a loss, you've locked in a loss with borrowed money. Um, now, no, I won't, I won't be the one who does that. No one thinks they are. And this is this is the hard part of giving this advice, right? Is it's still falling on deaf ears. I'm saying it out loud. I'm saying it to you, dear listener, who's listening right now, and you're thinking, he's talking to everybody else. Oh yeah, the other the other people shouldn't think they're above average drivers, but I actually am. Um, which is exactly the psychological problem and around and around we go. So um, I, I think Tim is theoretically correct. Andrew is theoretically correct. Uh, I don't dispute any of it except that I would say to someone investing, don't use margin line unless you've been investing for at least 10 years for a start, right? Because you don't know yourself until you've been through an economic cycle and a market cycle. You don't know what you'll do. You don't know how you'll respond. You don't know how you'll feel. And loading yourself up with rocket fuel and going for it, hoping you might be one of the ones who are better than everybody else, is just stupid risky because the worst thing you can do, as Warren Buffett says, is go back to square one. You never, ever, ever, ever want to have to go back to square one with investing. And to some degree, the other thing I would say is if Tim's right, let's say, let's say he can do 3% better than the average market with borrowed money. That 3%, that 3% may not happen. Maybe your return is 5.4%, in which case the loans cost you money, even though you never had a margin call you've actually cost yourself money by borrowing it. So there's that, right? So be careful with that. Um, be mindful that it can start to, you can start to become a little bit complacent. I only borrowed 20%. That was fine. So I've only increased to 25 because that seems fair. Look, the market's down recently. I'll increase to 40%. Now's a good time. I've got that facility there. The market just crashed. I'm going to buy some more. All of a sudden, you find yourself somewhere you didn't expect to be. Like every slippery slope ever, like every incremental, almost unnoticeable boiling frog ever, you become that that proverbial boiling frog, right? You're the person who goes, how did the water get so hot? I didn't even, I, I thought I was in control here. Oops, now I'm in trouble. Margin call, back to square one. Oh my God, I've wasted 10 years of my investing career. I'll never get that back. And that's going to cost me probably doubling my money at retirement. So mm. I don't want to I don't want to say to anyone, don't do margin loans. Well, I actually want to say to everyone, don't do margin loans. Uh, but I, 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 just, I just think, so Buffett talks about last Buffett quote for today. I think it was a bit of time ago. Maybe another one. Um, don't don't promise something about, you can't deliver, mate. He talked okay, correct. I can't remember the exact context of this one, Andrew. But he talks about a, a circumstance, and he says they um, they bet what they had and needed for what they didn't have and didn't need. Mm. The idea there is like, do you want to jeopardize like the stuff you've got? Let's say let's say Tim can do do really. Let's say Tim can turn his. I'm going to pick some numbers here, Tim. Your hundred thousand dollars into—I'm uh, going to assume you're a young bloke—into four million dollars by retirement. Let's say you, let's say you can do that without a margin loan. You could take some risks and try and make that four million dollars eight, or it might end up being one and a half. Now the upside is much bigger than the downside in dollars. On one hand, I make four million, then I lose two and a half, and of course I want to make the four million. Except that if I offered you a guaranteed four million, or a chance you'd either have one and a half or eight, which would you go with? 
And again, that's an individual question, but I'm going to say to you, mm. I would choose the guaranteed return every day of the week and twice today on Sundays. Mm. Um, because I just, I just don't, there's no need to take more risk than you need to at that point. There's just simply not a requirement. If, you know, if, you've got a, if you're a day from retirement, you've got 13 cents in the bank and you can buy a lot of tickets, like, you know what, you might as well. If you're not about, yeah, you know, you're that skin anyway. If, you, if your logic doesn't win, you're not going to lose anything. And if it does win, you're going to make a fortune. Sure, buy a lot of ticket, knock yourself out. But if you've got a clear path to financial security and independence, and you jeopardise that because you want a little bit more, I'm just going to say, just just have a think, just be really, really, really careful that you don't overreach for the extra bit that you simply don't need to because the returns you're going to get are just going to be good enough anyway. With much, much, much not no risk as you say, Tim, but much, much, much less risk. If I can get there with it with a with a low risk strategy, or a little bit more with a much higher risk strategy, the ROI on that risk reward to me, I just, I wouldn't do it. So there you go. That's my mm. thoughts, Ram. Mm. Have I have I taken the right approach, the wrong approach? Am I off the path? Have you got a, a counterpoint? Well, n- no. You, you you're right. You're right to to, to distinguish between um, theory and reality, and that that's that is just so important. So. I mean, I, I, I don't think Tim was... I, I think, t- to be fair to Tim, he was, he was basically saying... I mean, even if he gets the market average, right? So let's say he gets yep. no outperformance. Let's yep. say he just buys an index fund. Yep. And so that's let's call that 10% per year on average over the next couple of decades. And he's yep. he's borrowing at a much lower rate. And he's borrowing at, a, at an LVR where a margin call is is um, very, very unlikely. And, and perhaps there's some cash on the sidelines that he can pay down. I actually don't think that's, that's, that's terribly risky. So I... Risk is a sliding scale. You know, you've got yes, lottery absolutely. ticket at, at one end, and you've got a, a, a you know bond at the other. So, so everything you said is correct, um, but it, it just it just depends on on where you sit. I, I I got the sense that Tim's thought about it very carefully and sensibly. And he's not he's he's not making you know that I I'll do really well and this will make me do even better and I'm going to risk yeah, everything to do totally, it. He's totally. not he's not he's, I know you're not saying that, but I just clarify that point. So. Yeah, for, look for 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 most people, I would I would very much not suggest a margin loan. I'm just saying that it it can make sense if you're very realistic and you're very sensible and you're very risk focused. I so I'm going to add quickly to that. I am I am. You're right about you know I don't want I don't want to miss I don't I don't offend Tim by by assuming he's not capable, hasn't thought it through. So I'll say this with an arm around Tim in in a spirit of friendship, which is, um, do you remember long term capital management, Andrew? Oh yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember how many Nobel Prize winners they had on their staff? Yeah, yep, yep. Lots. It was a uh, the only thing that could sink them was a six sigma event. So they had twelve Nobel laureates on staff mm. who could use all of their combined brain power to make an absolute fortune for their clients. Mm. Um, they went broke. They they they, they lost everything. They they and, and just I only say this because they and I'm not I'm not even disagreeing with you, mate. I just want to put some context on that. They were smart, thoughtful, well researched, learned. You you couldn't find um, a a more um, smart, capable, educated, whatever group of people if you tried than the people in that one metaphorical room. They're probably more than one room, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, all I, again, I just, I just make the point that even if you've done all the research and stuff, even if you've done the work, whenever you whenever you say I think that's a good risk to take. You are still taking that risk, and you have mm. to acknowledge there is a non-zero chance of it blowing up in your face, despite your best efforts, research efforts, mm. and all that kind of stuff. And I just, you know, if if everyone listening to us made twenty five percent more by taking on margin, that'd be probably a good thing. But if five percent of our listeners lost all their money while the other people made twenty five percent more, I don't know. I, I, as a group, I'd be like, you know what? Let's just not all take. Let's just all not take that risk. We don't need to because we're all going to make more than enough money just 
letting compounding do its thing without without having to try and be too clever about it. And you're right, I'm not, I don't mean this to be insulting to Tim. I'm sure he's done the work and the thought and the research. I'm just saying that circumstances are circumstances. And, you know, by definition, this is a non-zero risk. And just be, just be really careful about the risk you take. But I've, I've, I've yep. flogged that horse, I think. Yeah, no, and it's, it's all good points. Each to their own. Just, just be, you know, plan, plan for the worst, hope for the best. I think, and I think that's right. Pl- planning for the worst is exactly the point, right? I think that's, mm. you're, you've nailed it, absolutely nailed it. Mm. We've well and truly outstayed our welcome on this Sunday, Andrew. Hopefully our listeners have enjoyed spending some time with us. We've certainly enjoyed spending some time with each other or you spent time with, enjoyed spending time with me. I've, I've tolerated you. Um, we, should, uh, <laughs> we, we should we should, we should, uh, sign off though and let our listeners go enjoy the rest of their Sunday afternoons or Monday mornings or whatever they're doing. Um, thank you too, by the way, for, for listening and sharing this podcast with people in your family. There is nothing genuinely that I like more than hearing that the podcast has been useful helping other people invest or for you investing better, right? Like we talk about some really cool topics and we try and have fun and we, and we you know, this stuff's important. Um, but if, if these podcasts can help even even half a dozen people start investing, get a sense of it, um, get into it, then we've done our job multiple times over. That's where the, that's where the psychic benefit is for me. Uh, that's, what I, yep. that's why we do Same. the podcast. That's what we're here for. Um, of course, we want to help everyone invest better. But um, if you have some people in your life that you think would benefit from the podcast, please throw it their way. Um, is it for us? Well, I guess. I mean, you know, we, we make a little bit of advertising revenue here and maybe we get a couple of dollars more if there's more listeners, I suppose. Um, can I say that our boss doesn't really care about the advertising revenue? You know, Bruce, Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's fine and, and the guys that listen get some money out of it. So look, yeah, there's money in it if more people listen, I suppose, and, and there's ego benefits. So absolutely. Do I, do I, you know, do I feel better if more people listen? Sure. I got a bit of a spring in my step. <laughs> um, but if, you know, if, if, it is view, if it is useful for you and it might be useful for others. Uh, we've had so many people. Um, Bella, who we spoke about last week, um, kids, teenagers in the car, just so many people getting getting a bit of a kick and, and learning about investing by doing it. And that's that's really what, what makes it worthwhile for me. So if you have someone in your life who might benefit from it, please throw it their way. Um, if it doesn't hurt you, and if it's terrible, they'll tell you. If it's not, they'll keep listening. So uh, you've probably done them a, done them a solid too, I reckon, by, by putting them under investing a different way than maybe the rest of, rest of the world. All right, that wraps us up. Before we go, don't forget to subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast. Do it through iTunes, do it through Android, do it through the new listener app on either platform. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating and review. I've just talked about that, so I'm not going to bang on about it. Uh, But if they can use some foolishness in their lives too, then uh, do do them a favor. And of course, we'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. In the meantime, fool on. Thanks for listening. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.